Colossians chapter 1. All right, Colossians chapter 1. So last week we began a new series called What is the Gospel? And really this whole kind of topic and this theme is going to lead us probably to the most of summer. And my ultimate goal is to eventually get to the point to where we're talking about what are the implications of someone who is trusting and believing in this gospel. But before we can talk about the implications and what it should look like for someone trusting the gospel, we have to first be able to answer the question, what is the gospel? And last week, if you weren't here, just as a way of reminder to those who were, uh, we mentioned how a lot of people, when asked that question, answer in a various different ways. So if someone asks you, what is the gospel? Some people might say, well, the gospel is if you believe in God, and you know that he loves you, that you'll have eternal life. Well, that, that's how we respond to the gospel and some of the fruits of the gospel. But what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is that God loves you and that he has a plan for your life and that he wants you to know him. Well, those are parts of the gospel. But what is the actual gospel? And so I, I could give a lot of you know, analogies and, and ways people have tried to explain before, but ultimately last week we said that the gospel ultimately is news and that it's good news. And we kind of divided this, this theme, this talk into four different ways. One, we understand that there's a God who made all things. He's the creator of everything seen and unseen. Two, that he made man in his image, but man has sinned. They have rebelled against God. And because of their sin, they will be judged by God. And those who do not trust in God's plan of redemption, third point, Jesus, will suffer hell. But the good news is that God, through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, those who put their trust and dependence and reliance in Christ can respond to this message and receive the forgiveness of sins, the promise of resurrection and eternal life. So really, kind of what we talked about was a brief overview of the gospel message of God, man, Christ and response. And what I'd like to do for the next two weeks, uh, this week and then two weeks from now, because next week we won't have you here for Father's Day, is I want to take two of those at a time and go into a little bit more, more depth. And so what I'm going to do tonight is I want to talk about God. Let's talk about God. And then talk about man. Okay. So it'll be a little bit kind of similar to last week, but just in more depth. Because let me tell you why this is really important. If you do not have a right concept of God, the gospel won't fully make sense, nor will it have its intended consequences. If your view of God is skewed, therefore your understanding of the gospel will be skewed. And two, if we don't fully recognize man's condition and man's problem, the gospel will never actually be the good news that it is. It will only be news, not good news. So that's my goal, that's my aim tonight, is to talk about these two things, God and man. God and man. Before I begin, let me pray. Lord, as we approach your word, I pray that you give us clarity, you give us understanding. Father, I pray that you protect and guard my words. Lord, I pray that this message, the gospel, would truly transform the lives of all who hear it here tonight. I pray all these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Who is God. 
I'd be scared to go to the middle of Seattle and ask people that open-ended question of who is God. I'm sure a lot of the responses you would get maybe in a liberal city as such as Seattle is uh, God is you know, a person made up by religious people who is some old grumpy dude in the sky and he really cares about how you live your life and he just you know, tells people that he loves them but really ultimately he's just in the business of controlling people, right? Some people might have the concept of God as you know, just a really old, like you know like the old neighbor guy in your neighborhood, just old and nice and not, not the creepy guy but just kind of like, you know, you look at him you're like, oh, cute old man, right? And he just is like, go get him, tiger, like, you know, like, and, and this concept of God that sometimes we construct as God is kind of like an old gardener up in heaven, and he makes beautiful things, and he's just waiting for people to come and talk to him, and he just wants to, to let you know that he's on your side, and that he's rooting for you, and he wants to have, you know, he wants you to have your best life now, kind of this concept of God, of this, this domesticated old man, And whatever it is your concept of God, if it is not the biblical concept of God, everything we talk about week in and week out will really not make a lot of sense or, or do you very little good. And so I, I want to just kind of give two points in this, this idea of God, right? Now, let me tell you something. I, I think this message in part should fuel us to knowing the God that we worship. I, I really want to commend Blake tonight for picking three really great songs that all talked about the nature of who God is. That he is the creator. He makes beautiful things. And the most beautiful thing he ever made was man in his own image. But two, God is also holy. This God is not just some God who, you know, is powerful, but yet kind of sits there out of control. He, he is wonderful, majestic, and righteous. And because he is the creator, and because he is holy, we ought to praise him. That's what we say in all creatures of our God and King. And so tonight, what I want to look at in terms of God is, one, that he is the creator, and two, that he is holy and righteous. So Colossians chapter 1, hope you're there already. I realize the context of this is Christ, but since Jesus is God, it makes perfect sense to talk out of Colossians 1, starting at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Paul here is talking about Christ helping a little heresy of the Colossians are struggling with. And he adds to this, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, Paul here, is, in, his, in this context, is trying to get the people to have a higher view of who Jesus is. Now, some people, they look at Jesus, he's just a good teacher, he was a prophet, he gave a lot of instruction, he you know, helped a few people with their sickness and illnesses, but, but Paul here says, no, 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 no. He is preeminent, he is supreme, he is the first in all things, namely because he's the creator of all the source of all life, the source of all beauty, the source of all goodness flows from the person of Christ, from the Trinitarian God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And the Bible, over and over and over, if you were someone who has read the Old Testament, here's what you find. A litter of verses just talking about how God is the creator, that there are no other gods other than him, that he is the true one God. So here then is the point of God being the creator. That the fundamental truth of all human existence, the well from which all else flows, listen, is that God has created us and therefore God owns us. God has made you. Therefore, he has say in your life. He is not someone where you can just choose whether or not he's going to have any influence in your life. He is not just someone where you can kind of just say, ah, that's not important to me. Because whether you know it or not, it is important. Because whether you know it or not, one day you will stand before this creator of yours and you will be held account. The reason why the Bible is so interested about the story of creation is because ultimately without it, there is no binding to life. I don't have time, but, but I would love to take our, our attention to Romans chapter 1, where Paul is talking about how society and its moral decay is really because people have rejected their creator. Now, do me a favor for a second. Think about when your mind goes to God. Maybe tomorrow in your English class, one of the journal assignments you have is to write on this question of, who is God? And you get, to you get to write yourself empty of all your thoughts and all your feelings of who God is. I'd also be scared to read some of the answers, even of church-going people. Because if our concept of God is just this mystical force, creature, old man in the sky, then we really don't begin to actually love him and fear him and obey him for who he is. I mean, I, I think one of the reasons why God made the earth so beautiful and so wonderful is that when we look at things like Mount Rainier and we think to ourselves, the God who spoke that into existence is not a God to be trifled with, but, a, but someone to to stand in awe and reverence before him. But unfortunately, our concept of God is a lot like going to a museum and going up in front of a picture and staring two inches away from it. Our concept of God really only comes from one typical well. And here it is. Can I just tell you? In our day and age, the only thing that people know about God... and, and there's good in this, but it's also short-sighted, is, is this. God is love. God is love. If I could tell you two verses that most people know, here it is. God is love. Don't judge me. That's all people want from God. That's all they want from Christians. They go, God is love. He loves me. Don't judge me. Right? That is typically as far as most people want to think about God. And so although we start with the idea that God is powerful, that he is the creator, and since he is the creator, he has right over your life, let us now look to one other passage. That's where I need you all to turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. 
Old Testament now, second book of the Bible. So we're going way back there. And we're going to go to another familiar passage talking about who God is, the character of God. And so this is, the context here is Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments from God. This is actually a really great passage. But let me, let me tell you, something here, right? So Exodus 34. And we'll actually begin in verse 5, but I really want to focus on in verses 6 and 7. So verse 5 of Exodus 34 says this, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, that's Moses, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And if you see that word there, the Lord, in Hebrew it's Yahweh, right? It's God's covenant name. Now look at verse 6 with me, okay? The Lord passed before him, this is Moses, Moses is saying, God, I want to see you. I want to see your glory, okay? And Moses, God's like, no, if you see me, you're going to die. And he's like, okay, I'll just come barely pass you by because you're the back end of me, okay? Now, here's what I have. The Lord passed before him, and this is God proclaiming. This is the Lord talking about himself. Here it is. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is the the Lord revealing who he is. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. You know, this little phrase is used the most in the Old Testament, describing who God is. So, you guys know the story of Jonah? God says, hey, Jonah, I want you to go down to Nineveh, and I need you to preach to the Assyrians. And Jonah's like, I got a better idea. I'm going to go in the exact opposite direction, right? And I'm going to go down to Joppa. And so he gets on a boat, like, I'm fleeing from the God, you know, all this stuff. And God's like, uh, you know what? You can't resist my will. So I sent this huge storm, and everyone on the boat's like, oh my gosh, we're going to die. And Jonah's like, hey, it's actually me. I'm disobeying the Lord who made everything. And so I think you should throw me over the boat. And Jonah's thinking, like, I should just die at this point. So they throw him over the boat, and God's like, hey, you can't resist my will. I'm going to get a big fish to swallow you up, right? So a big fish comes and swallows Jonah. This literally happened. As me telling you, that literally happened. And in the middle, in the middle of this ocean, the big fish, Jonah set, cries out to God, God, that's you, you know, I'm, I'm done, I'm, I'm done, help me. So this, uh, three days later, this big fish vomits Jonah out onto the sea. Where, where does Jonah go next? He goes to Nineveh this time, and he gives this really half-hearted message, where he just goes to the people and he says, hey, repent, or in 30 days or 90 days, destruction will come. Like, literally, in, in the book of Jonah, the message is nine words in Hebrew. And do you know what people do? Are you kidding me? We gotta repent. And the king and everyone in the whole city repents and they, they, they turn to God. And this is what's really interesting. Jonah goes outside of the city and he gets mad. Right? It's like me last week when I'm preaching the gospel to you and I'm pleading you, be reconciled to God. And someone says, Hey, you're right. I need to be reconciled to God. I, I need Christ in my life. I need the forgiveness of sins. And then for me to look at that and say, Gosh dang it, God. Why do you do this? It's like the worst missionary possible. 
Like, he was mad because his enemies repented. And God's judgment is no longer to come. But, but here's, I say all this because of this. Jonah says, God, I knew you would do this. Because, God, I know that you are a God. And you know what he does? Quotes Exodus 34. And Jonah says this. A God merciful and gracious who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Over and over and over again. Do you know what we see in the Old Testament? This description of who God is. And praise God that this is the God who we worship. That he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Forgiving iniquity and sin. Now let me tell you something. We have done a great job as Christians of making the world know this about God. That God is loving. That he loves you. That mercy is greater than judgment. But do you know the problem? What was the problem I just missed here in Exodus 34? Is I didn't finish the passage. Did I? I actually cut it off. Let's read the whole thing. Exodus 34, well, again, we'll start in verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Verse 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But, here it is. But, who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and all the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, but who will not let the guilty go unpunished? All we have done is describe a God who is there to pat our therapeutic needs, to make sure that we have the perfect little life, who's going to make sure that we don't have to go to hell. He loves us. That's all we tell people. But if we do not understand the love of God without his holy, righteous justice, we find a God who falls flat. That, that in essence, the good news that we're about to get to has no context. It has no gripping if you do not understand that this righteous and good God is a God who will punish the wicked, who will punish wrongdoing. And unfortunately... What we do to God is we try to make him more palatable. We make God a little lesser of who he actually is. And I think it's funny that sometimes we have to, we feel like we have to defend God. You don't have to defend God. God is God. God can stand it for himself. Now we should desire and honor that people speak true things about God and fight against people who say wrong things about God. But there's not a sense where I have to make someone feel a certain way about God. This is who God is, the God who will punish wrongdoing. And so I have this quote here. It says this, the gospel is God's response to the bad news of sin. And sin is a person's rejection of God's creator rights over him. And so ultimately, guys, here is what Exodus 34 is, is showing us in a way that all of us want to fashion a God for ourselves. 
None of us actually wants a God who is going to punish us. We want a God who's going to punish all the real bad people out there, but a God who is going to punish people like me and you for our sin, we have a hard time dealing with that. And so you, do you find it interesting that in the first couple of commandments that God gives to Israelites, make no other gods, have no other gods before me, we are tempted always to make God in the way we want him to. And, and another way we describe that is we, we put God in our own little theological boxes. Well, I think it goes, typically, that God is like um, my dad who just really loves me and says all these really nice things to me and he gives me all the affirmation. And every once in a while when I get off track and have some bad attitudes, he'll kind of come in and, and give me an encouraging word to get me right back on track. Or I think that God loves everyone and has a plan for their life, but the people who really take the time to know him can have a better plan of life. And that's all it really is, is I think that God is dot, dot, dot. And what we're doing is we're putting God in a box. We think that we can make God for who he is. But let me tell you something. Wayne Grudem says this in his book. There isn't one aspect of God. So think about God, who he is. You know, he's creator, he's holy, he's righteous, he's just, he's good, he's kind, you know, he's omniscient, right? He's omnipresent, right? He, he's, he's all of these things. I could describe, you know, all these aspects about who God is. Now, Wayne Groom says this. When we are in heaven for a million years, for all of eternity, we will never, ever be able to fully understand not even one of God's attributes. You know what he's saying there? That when, when you are in heaven for a billion years, there is still a sense in which you will never even begin to exhaust one little piece of who God is. Which is why we need the Bible to tell us who God is. And who is God? He's the creator who owns us and who has rights over us. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, but... He will not let the guilty go unpunished because of his holiness because of his righteousness because of his justice he will punish your sin he will and this leads us to our second point about man but that's God we have to take a second to understand about man let me, let me give you a little illustration here so um I went to college in Chicago, and after college, I stayed there and did graduate work, and my wife and I were living in the suburbs of Chicago, and my younger brother and his wife at the time were living in Virginia, and they were driving all the way from Virginia to Chicago to visit us. Now, my wife was pregnant with twins at the time, so this is 2013, and I was like, man... Tell Amy, I was like, uh, babe, I was like, we should really do something fun with Jacob and Jill when they get here. She's like, yeah, let's go on a road trip. I was like, perfect. So even they took a road trip to get to us. The next morning, we went on another road trip, right? And so I didn't know where to go, but I heard a lot about this place called Wisconsin Dells. Has anyone heard of Wisconsin Dells? Yeah, you have, right? Um, and they called the water park capital of the world, right? So I'm thinking in my mind, oh, it's going to be awesome. Water parks everywhere. And we get there, and it was like, 
freaking Great Wolf Lodge, but on roids, right? A bunch of little kids everywhere. And I was like, oh my gosh, what do we do, right? But with all that said, it's a tiny little town, not much going on. And um, I parked somewhere, and we we're literally going to be like out of the car for like 30 minutes. And Amy's like, are you going to pay the meter? I was like, you know, 30 minutes, I'll just take my chances, right? Come back three minutes later, on, the, on our window was a $7 parking ticket, okay? Now, I tell you, like, I've had some experience parking some cars in Chicago and dealing with meter maze, and I've gotten more parking tickets than you'll ever know in your life, right? Trust me when I say that. So I look at a $7 parking ticket in a different state that I live in. Here's what I do. Get it, chuckle, crinkle it up, throw it over my shoulder. It's exactly what I did, and I get in the car and I drive, and he's like, wait, I'm like, babe, we live in Illinois. Let's see them really come out to their $7. I I'm curious now. Like, they ain't going to do nothing, right? <laughs> Kid, you not. One year later, I get this like bill from the city of Wisconsin Dells. You owe us $50. Throw it away, right? God, please. Like, I was like moving in three months, okay? I was like, come and get me. I'm moving to Washington, right? Month later, final notice. If you do not pay this fifty dollars, because like it got fines and the interest and all this stuff, da da da. If you do not pay us, right, it's gonna affect your credit. I'm like, they don't have my credit. Da da da. da. Throw it away. Okay, out of sight, out of mind. Right? Like, don't even care. Come and get me. Right. So here's the thing. I moved to Washington. My wife and I were buying a house. Uh, and uh, we're sitting there like we have great credit. And so they, they pull our credit and they're like, hey, there's something on here. I'm like, well, what's up? Like, completely blindsided. Like, you have um, an account in collections and it's dropping your credit score by 80 points right now. <laughs> Which, if you don't know, when you're buying a house, that affects your interest rate. I was like, those freaking people in Wisconsin <laughs> Dells straight up somehow got a hold of my social security number and collection. So I had to go back and at the time when I paid it finally, it's $107. And of course, you know, this is ammo for my wife is like, should have just paid it. Should've just paid it. So here's the problem. Here's the illustration. That's kind of a funny story, but learn my lesson there, right? Um, why do I say that? When we talk about sin, I think it's a lot like that parking ticket. We don't actually feel like we're that bad. Right? It's one thing to say, yeah, I'm a sinner, but, but we don't actually feel bad for the sin that we have. You see, what, what is true in Scripture is that, that God has made everything good, but man, right out of the gates, disobeyed God. They took of the apple that God forbid it for them, and they ate it. Now, now here, I just, kind of what I want to talk about here is the nature of sin. The nature of sin. And I talked a lot about this in Genesis, but any opportunity I had to talk about it, it's important. Because, because here's why. If your concept of sin is weak and limp, you'll never actually think that the gospel is good. So just say that the gospel is there to kind of help you, and when you have a sad day, it's on par with getting a cup of coffee and you know, putting on a sad song on the radio. But if you truly understand the nature of your sin, and then you hear about what God, this holy God, has done for you, your only response will be resting, rejoicing in what Christ has done for you. 
But do me a favor, before we get there, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. I know we're skipping everywhere, but, but, but stick with me, right? If you have a hard time finding your way in the Bible, God eats popcorn, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, right? That's a good one for me. So Ephesians chapter 2. If we do not understand our sin, our faith will ultimately become futile. So, um, this is maybe one of the best passages talking about the nature of our sin. So Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, it says this, Apostle Paul here, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the son of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and whereby nature of children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Paul here, in no uncertain terms, says it like this. The problem with man is not that you just have a little imperfections that need to be straightening out. The problem with man is not just that sometimes you get unmotivated and you kind of grow lazy in your relationship with God. Paul is not saying that sin is just like when you drop a cookie on the ground for two seconds and you pick it up and you have to dust it off, but for the most part it's pretty good. What Paul is saying is that sin is ingrained in you. He literally says this about our sin nature, that we, by nature, were children of wrath. Children of wrath. And so ultimately, when we look at sin, I think a lot of times we feel that same way about getting a $7 parking ticket. Where we're kind of like, ah, yeah, that was kind of dumb of me. I probably should have paid the 50 cents and, you know... It's only $7. It's not that big of a deal. And this is where we fundamentally, our hearts, do not understand the nature of God. Because let me tell you something. When Adam and Eve ate of that apple, it was not just eating an apple. Do you know what they were really saying in their heart? They were saying, God, you are not our king. We will do it on our own. God, you say good, but we doubt your goodness. God, although you have made us and you have rights on our lives to tell us how we should live, we want to reject you as our creator and ultimately live as if the universe was created for us and for our glory. Sin is always switching allegiances of your creator to yourself. Because this is why sin in God's eyes, whether it be a small little white lie, whether it be a big sin that you commit in your life, sin is is always in the heart of God injustice, unrighteousness, filthy, and impure. Sin is not just behavior. It is us trying to make ourselves the God of our reality. And to God, that is the most extreme form of ungodliness there is. All sin. And see, guys, the problem is, is when I look at my little five-year-old daughter, 
beautiful, she's cute, she's strong, she's smart. But I'm tempted when she's fighting with her sister or says something kind of witty to laugh. I'm tempted when she talks back to her mother in, in a funny way to, to kind of say, oh, hey, that's, that was kind of cute, actually. Do you know why it's not cute? It's because she is showing her sin that she does not want to live under the authority of God. And that ultimately, her sin will cause her to have to stand before this holy God and give an account. The problem with man is that we don't think we're as bad as we actually are. One of the ways sin has twisted and warped our perceptions is that it has made us think that we are safe when we're actually not safe. That has made us think that, that sin is just something that we should kind of fix a little bit. You know, I don't know how many of you go to the car wash, right? And you go through and all those little things happen. You can pay for like the, the better version of the car wash. And I always get the cheap version of the car wash. But a lot of times, guys, can I tell you, we like to think that sin is just the outer. But do you know what Paul is saying here? In your very core of who you are, in your nature, is someone who rebels against the goodness of your creator. That you are a sinner by birth and also by choice. Now let me say something. Not long ago in my recent history, I was talking to Christians. They were Christians. Talking about sin. And here was the hesitation. Huh. God wouldn't say that about me. My, no way. And I think in essence we were reading something that alluded to, you know, Ephesians 2, 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And, and this person said, you know, my dad, who loves me, would never tell me that, so therefore God would never tell me that. But do you want to know the problem with that statement? It's that your dad isn't God. God will tell you the problem, right? But here's the thing. Sometimes people, I, I think, maybe talk about sin to the point to where people feel disgusted by themselves. Now, I think what, what I really appreciate about one of the songs that Blake sang um, that song by Gungor, that you make beautiful things. You make beautiful things out of us. Let me tell you something. Although you are a sinner, and in your core, all you know is rebelling against God, you have worth and dignity and respect because you were made in the likeness of your creator. That is a truth to every single person that does not negate the fact that we have to still tell you and tell ourselves that you're a sinner. You know, I don't have time. I spent a lot of time, but in Revelation 6, matter of fact, I'll just turn there for you. Revelation 6, if, if you want a good picture of what it will be like to stand account before God, knowing your sin and seeing the beauty and the holiness and the righteousness of God, listen to this. In Revelation 6, there's a seal that is broken out. In verse 15, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. 
And they were literally saying this. They were calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath is come. And who can stand? Do you know why that, 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 that's a great passage? Because here's what it's saying. That day when you finally have to stand on account for your sin and all the little things that you've done that you don't think are a big deal, in essence what it's saying, they are literally calling for the rocks of the mountains to hide their face from the awful terror of the righteousness of Christ. That is how bad we are. That is true of every single person here. And if we do not understand that God is our creator who has rights on us and that we have rebelled time and time and time again, the love in which he has shown us in Christ will mean very little. It is not until your sin becomes a personal weight that you feel will the freedom that Christ offers you be the best news that you ever hear. High schoolers, let me tell you. Ultimately, because of our sin, hell is the logical implication. You know, I, I struggle with how many Christians try to lessen hell. They try to make it a little bit more tolerable. But can I just tell you how often the Bible talks about hell in horrible terms? The lake of fire, of sulfur, you know, literally, hell is eternal, conscious punishment. And I, and I find it weary that Christians want to make it sound not as bad than it actually is. Because it is really bad. And ultimately, this is the part where people say, I don't want to hear this. I don't want to hear this. A God who's going to send people to hell. That's because ultimately, one... We want a God that we fashion for ourselves so we do not understand. But two, because we do not understand how bad we are compared to this holy and righteous God. And ultimately, I tell people this. Do you think I like this? Do you think I would just make this up? This cosmic God who just wants most people to burn and rot in hell for eternity? I preach it and I tell it to you because it's in the Bible and I believe in God's word. And so guys, ultimately, the good news cannot be good unless we know the bad news. That this holy, righteous creator who has made us in his image has every right to cast us into eternal, <coughs> conscious punishment in hell because of our sin. But there is good news. We'll talk about that next week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, God, that you love us so much. God, that even though while we were sinners, Christ died for us. May that be the truth that we hold on to every single day. Lord, ultimately, um, I pray that you would help us to have repentive hearts knowing, God, that we have rebelled against you as our creator. 
So Lord, I pray that in response to these things, I pray that our hearts would move towards Christ and they would see that in him there is forgiveness and redemption. There is new life. So Lord, with glad hearts, may us look to you as our sovereign Lord and give you thanks for what you have done for us. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.